Would you turn with me, please, to uh, 2 Timothy 2. I have a a friend in California who was uh, asked to uh, write a report on his ministry this past year. And I want to uh, read just one excerpt from that report. He says, adding to the adventure of my ministry is the whole spectrum of problems that unfolds. There are all forms of anger, from long-standing resentment and unforgiveness to rebellion, violence, child-beating, mutilation, wife torture, threats against life, murder for hire, and mafia-related revenge. There are the sexual offenses of rape, incest, sodomy, homosexuality, swingers, bestiality, fornication, the ever-present adultery, and the omnipresent AIDS. There are marital problems of every kind, attempted or contemplated suicide, and an occasional successful suicide. Abortions, family problems between parents or single parents and children. There are addicts of every sort, alcoholics, drugaholics, foodaholics, workaholics, sexaholics, spendaholics. There are the institutionalized, either coming from or going to a prison, hospital, detox unit, mental facility. There are the psychotic to deal with, and there are those quieter problems of legal, finance, and career, questions about a specific passage of Scripture or those who simply want to know about our church. The problems I have just recalled from memory are representative of cases that have been in my office over the past 12 months. And we say, ah, that's California. I have a friend uh, who says that uh, he... He's convinced that the entire northern uh, North American continent tilts toward the southwest and everything that's loose rolls to California. <laughs> but uh, coming from California, uh, I can say that's true to some extent. But we have a lot of the same problems right here in, in Boise. We may be a bit behind the rest of the world, but we have the same problems right here. And the question that comes to us time and time again is, how do we keep our sanity in this, uh, this insane world that we live in? How do we keep our faith? And then what, we ha- what do we have to say to this world? What word do we have that will encourage and sustain and help people live in a world like this? This is what we want to talk about uh, this morning. Let's uh, look at 2 Timothy 2. Verses 1 through 13. I'm going to begin this morning by reading through the entire passage. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You recognize, of course, that when Paul uses the term men, he's speaking generically. We could just as well say In every instance, men and women. These entrust to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what what I say, 
For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. This is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? Lord, we want to think hard about this passage. We want to put our minds to the task of understanding it. But we ask that you will grant to us understanding in all things. Help us to see what's here. Give us humble hearts and minds to perceive the truth that you've given to us through through these verses. And to act upon them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This is uh, really a very easy passage to uh, teach and to understand. There are three commands that are issued. The first is in verse 1, be strong in grace. The second command is in verse 2, entrust the truth to faithful men and women. The third is in verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Three commands, followed by three metaphors or three illustrations which support the third command, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, and then three illustrations of what it means to suffer hardship. The metaphor of of a soldier in verse 4, of an athlete in verse 5, and a farmer in verse 6. And then three incentives that help us to suffer hardship. hardship. The the incentive of our Lord Jesus himself in verse 8, the example of the Apostle Paul in verse 9, and then in verses 11 through 13, the universal experience of all Christians. Now, that's the breakdown of the passage. The passage begins with uh, the conjunction, therefore, that puts us back into the first chapter, the second chapter, and these three commands are the logical consequence of the teaching that we receive from chapter 1. And uh, as we followed the argument last week, Paul says uh, that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God and the salvation. Onesiphorus is not ashamed of the gospel. He died for it. At least I believe that he was martyred for his support of the Apostle Paul. And, uh, and Timothy, therefore, is not to be ashamed of the gospel. He is to entrust it to others. Now, the first command is to be strong in the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, This is not a call merely to be strong. That would have no force for Timothy. Timothy was not a a forceful man. He wasn't strong in himself. He wasn't naturally uh, courageous. He was timid and inclined to to shrink from the heavy responsibilities that uh, were his. He was afraid to take on this task. Uh, There was a Wizard of Is, Id uh, cartoon strip here a couple of weeks ago that caught my attention. Uh, the uh, knight says to uh, sweet Guinevere, I'm going off to battle. 
She says, be careful. He says, perhaps I should carry something personal of, of yours into the carnage. And she says, no, you're not going to wear my gown again. Uh, we, we can all identify, I think. We're all a, a little bit afraid of, of the task. We'd like, to, we'd like to protect ourselves in some way. Now, uh, simply an injunction to, uh, to Timothy to be strong would not work. Timothy could no longer, no more be strong than, uh, than a, a horse could fly. He was not a strong man. This is not a command to be strong. The verb is passive. It's a command to be strengthened by grace. It's a command to Timothy to get his, his courage and his power and his resources from, from God himself who indwelt him. Grace is simply uh, uh, is the word that describes for us God's willingness to give and give and give of himself even though we don't deserve it. It, it describes God's desire to give us everything that he is to make available to us, to us all of his resources at no cost to ourselves, simply to, to receive it and to believe it. Now, that's what strengthens us. It, it is our relationship with God that makes us strong in this world. And that's the only way any of us can stand. It's the only way any of us can have anything to say to our crazy, mixed-up, topsy-turvy world. It's only as we're strengthened by God's grace that we have anything to say to our, to our world. Now, that sounds like a, like a cliché, like a religious bromide, but, but it's not. It's truth. We have to be strengthened daily by his grace. That means that we need to take the time to, to be fed by his word, to read the scriptures and, and meditate upon them. And we need to take the time to pray, to worship him, to center ourselves upon him through, through prayer. It's, it's out of that regular practice uh, of, uh, of devotion and worship and fellowship with God that we're able to draw upon the grace that's ours. We can't do without it. Uh, Gordon MacDonald describes that as ordering your private world. And uh, he uses an illustration from a, an incident that, that, uh, that a friend of his told, told him about. This man was a duty officer uh, on a, uh, a nuclear submarine that was in the Mediterranean. And there were a number of surface ships that were passing overhead. And, and this man had to make sudden course directions, unexpected changes in direction that was shaking the ship up. And after a bit, the captain came down from his stateroom and looked into the control room. And uh, he said to McDonald's friend, is everything all right? And the duty officer said, yes, sir. And he looked around in the control room and he saw that everyone was in control of the particular part of the ship that they were responsible for. And, and he said, it looks all right to me. And he went back up to his stateroom and McDonald said, that's what we have to do from time to time. Life tends to shake us up and, and we get insecure and uncertain about things. Our circumstances become adverse and difficult. That's the time to, to look into the control room and see if everything is all right. And if God is in control, if he has his, his hands on the wheel, if he's meet, uh, looking at the gauges and, 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 and if things are un, under his control, then everything's all right. So our public world can be disordered, but if our private world is ordered, then there can be poise and, and tranquility. That's what it means to be 
to be strengthened by grace. As the hymn writer puts it, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. A place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. So as we draw near to God on a daily basis and we gather strength from him, we are we are fixed and stabilized and strengthened by his grace so that that uh, we can keep our peace and our poise when our world is, is falling apart. Now that's the first command. Get a grip on God. Be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And secondly, the things which you have heard from me, that is the body of apostolic teaching that Timothy had received from the apostle, he is to entrust to faithful men and women, that is believing men and women, men and women who will take it seriously, who will, who will uh, submit themselves to the word, entrust the truth to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. The gospel, Paul says, is to be passed on like a baton from one, uh, from one runner to the next. Don't drop the baton, he says. The, the handoff has to be sure and secure. Pass it on to the next person. I, I have often said, and I sincerely believe, that the most effective ministry that any of us can engage in is this one of simply entrusting the truth to others. Discipleship is nothing more than befriending people and passing on to them the truth that you have. That's all it is. It doesn't take a seminary degree. You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to have an enormous amount of information about the Bible. The gospel is transmitted from one generation to the next as common folk like you and me befriend other people and tell them what we know about God. That's discipleship. That's all it is. And that's the most effective way to pass on the gospel to the next generation. We're attuned to think that the best way to reach a generation is through mass evangelism, and there's certainly nothing wrong with mass evangelism. That method has been used for generations, and it's effective, and all of us could see the results of the Graham Crusade when Dr. Graham was here three years ago. It uh, created an atmosphere where it was easy to talk about spiritual things. But I'm convinced, and even Dr. Graham would say, that the most effective way to reach people is not through mass evangelism, but through one-on-one discipleship. Now, you just stop and think about it for a minute. Suppose each of you were to lead one person to Christ this year or find one person who knows the Lord and who wants to go on with him, and you were willing to spend an hour uh, a week with that person. Have lunch with them or a cup of coffee with them. And, and together, look into the scriptures and, and grow together and encourage each other so that at the end of the year, each of you would be able to take on one other person and disciple them. Well, in the first few years, that doesn't sound too impressive. The first year, there would just be two of you. If only one of you in this congregation took on that challenge, there would be two. The next year, there would be four. The next year, there'd be eight. In four years, there'd be 16. Do you know how long it would take you to evangelize the entire city of Boise? 17 years. And within 20 years, you could evangelize the state of Idaho. Now, of course, we have an opponent, and nothing works in theory quite like, uh, in practice, quite like it uh, sounds in theory. We have an enemy. Nevertheless, 
That's the way to get it done. You want to have an influence upon your world? Then just ask God to give you one person this year that you can impart the truth to. All of you have time to do that. As a matter of fact, it's not even a question of time. It's a matter of priorities. Because our Lord told us that we are to make disciples of all nations. That mandate has never been rescinded. Never. The way to get the job done is simply to permit the Lord to draw you to one person. Befriend them. Make a friend out of them. Love them. Begin to teach them the truth. And see what God does with it. Don't worry about numbers. We, we're inclined to, to be too much impressed with, with large numbers. That's God's concern. You don't need to worry about numbers. Years ago, when I was uh, working with students, I invited a, a very prominent uh, speaker for a group. Most of you would recognize his name. I uh, invited him to come to the campus where I was working, and I took him into a number of fraternities. And The problem with that campus is that... that Students there are jaded and, and unimpressed with everyone. They wouldn't walk across the street to hear Buckminster Fuller uh, speak. That actually happened. He spoke on the campus once, and ten students showed up. He was really shocked. And uh, this, I took this man into a fraternity house to speak, and two students showed up, and he wouldn't speak. He sat in the corner and pouted. I couldn't believe it. He wouldn't speak. But uh, what it indicated to me is that uh, sometimes we really do not appreciate the worth of individuals. How much is an individual worth? They have infinite value. If one person uh, lived on the earth, our, our Lord would have died for that one person. People are valuable. They're infinitely valuable. But numbers don't matter. I've often said, you know, if you, you know, counting doesn't matter. You could weigh people. As they came in the door, you could announce next week, we had 70 tons of people here last night. <laughs> Who cares? Numbers don't matter. What matters is, is that faithful, plodding, persistent discipleship of others. That's what, that's what pays off. I have a friend in uh, Texas that I used to, I used to uh, go out to East Texas with him to dove hunt. His grandfather lived on a ranch near Lameda, Texas. And uh, we went into town one day, and Mr. Montgomery was walking down the streets of the town. He had lived in Lameda, Texas for 70 years. had been born there, raised there. And as we walked through the street, uh, streets of Lameda, he would stop and talk to people, and he would give them an encouraging word, or he'd pray with someone that was struggling, or he'd share a passage of Scripture with them. And it occurred to me as I followed him around that day that he knew everybody in town and he had touched every life in that, in that city, that, at least those that I saw. And he had touched them significantly. Why? Well, because for 70 years he had devoted himself to imparting truth to people as he had opportunities. And, and it showed me again that what matters is not, the, not the, the big flash. It's that persistent, patient, dogged endurance in imparting truth to people and leaving the consequences to God. There's not much glory in that. There isn't a great deal of glamour, but that's what the that's the sort of stuff that the ministry is made out of. And when I talk about ministry, I'm not talking about professional ministry, the kind of thing that I do. I'm talking about what all of us must do as members of the body of Christ. The the word that's translated ministry in the in the New Testament is the word from which we get our word deacon, diaconus or diaconia. It, it 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 the word means through the dust. 
as someone who stirs up dust. It was used of a household servant in the, in the Greek world. And that's what we are. We serve within the household of God. We're all ministers. Some professional, some, some non-professional, but we're all ministers. And as household servants, we have an opportunity to serve others by befriending them and imparting the truth to them. And no one is left out. Everyone has that opportunity. So we need to persist in it. The third command is to endure hardship, suffer hardship, Paul says, with me as a good soldier of of Christ Jesus. If you're going to impart the truth to others, you will suffer hardship. That's the name of the game. Paul tells uh, Timothy later in this book that those who seek to live godly lives will suffer persecution. Now, in the ancient world, it, it took the form of physical persecution. Paul was in prison, as he puts it later in this section we're looking at this morning. He is, was in prison for the sake of the gospel. And this was happening to many Christians at that time. A few years before, A.D. 64, the, the city of Rome had burned. Someone put a torch to the city. Historians think it was probably Nero who burned the city down so he could rebuild it to his own uh, honor. And for a week, the fires burned, the city was decimated. And they blamed the Christians. And so the Christians were hounded and hunted and, and uh, taken to the, to the arena and forced to fight gladiators and thrown to wild animals. And they were, uh, they were dying by the thousands. And throughout the history of the church, this has very often been, been the case. We're very fortunate now that we're free to preach the gospel without opposition. We don't, we don't have that sort of persecution. But the church has experienced it for 2,000 years. I was reading a, a year or so ago the story of the evangelization of Iceland. Interesting story. I'd, I'd never heard it before. Uh, the uh, uh, missionaries first went out from Britain to the seafaring communities in Norway and Sweden and the Shetland Islands, and they evangelized uh, those communities. And then those people sent missionaries to Iceland. King Olaf of Sweden sent uh, a number of missionaries to Iceland. One of them was a man named Gudleif, G-U-D-L-I-E-F. Gudleif, I guess is the way it would be pronounced. And uh, he's described as a, as a great warrior among men. And when he got there, Thorkell, who was the king of the Icelanders, uh, challenged him to mortal combat. And he actually had to fight this man with those big uh, axes that they used back in those days. And uh, had to fight for his life. And apparently he, he was victorious and he was able to preach the gospel to the Icelanders as a result. And uh, uh, Eric the Red's wife became a Christian and led her son, Leif Erikson, to Christ as a result of of that man's uh, willingness to engage in combat. He didn't want to. He had to fight for his life. But as a result, he was able to share the gospel. Now, most of us won't have to engage in mortal combat to pass on the truth to someone else, but that has been the uh, state of the church in the past. They've suffered. What it may mean for us is that we're not able to do some of the things that we would like to do. Maybe you can't teach an aerobics class this year that you would like to teach because you're going to take some time to spend with a friend and help them grow. Uh, Maybe you can't uh, do some of the recreational things that you had planned to do. Maybe you can't be away every weekend at your cabin because you're committed to someone and spending time with them. There's nothing wrong with those things. Don't get me wrong. But it's a question of priority. 
I think that's where our suffering, those are the things that, that uh, amount to suffering today. It's, 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 it's cutting down on our options. It's thinking through our priorities and deciding what really matters and doing those things, even though we have less privacy and less personal time and, uh, and, and we can't give ourselves to some of our hobbies or to developing our uh, backhand at uh, racquetball or whatever. We just have to give up a few things. And it may cost us in terms of, of costly relationships and friendships because love is always a, a very costly thing. As C.S. Lewis put it, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be continually wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket and coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. He's right. He's right. Uh, it will cost us in terms of, of time and energy. We'll have to give some things up. And it will cost us in terms of the hurt that comes from, from relationships that very often don't work out the way we expect them to. And so Paul says to Timothy, part and parcel of entrusting to faithful men the gospel is to suffer hardship. And then he illustrates by means of three strong metaphors. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. In those days, uh, commanding officers recruited their own men. They went from village to village and enlisted men on the strength of their own uh, personality and courage and reputation. And these men were loyal to them to the death. That's why Rome was able to wage her great battles and, and conquer the world. It's because their soldiers were loyal to their commanding officers. And Paul says the Christian life is like that. Our Lord has recruited us. And uh, it's our goal to please him, and therefore we must be unencumbered. Now, what he means is that we have to hold what things we have on, on the earth loosely. It's all right to possess things. It's all right to have possessions. It's all right to have money. It's even all right to have wealth. There's nothing sinful or wrong about these things. It's not what we have. It's what has us that matters. It's not gold, it's chains of gold, as John White puts it. We have to be unencumbered. We have to be willing to let go of anything. We, we can't both seek to be committed to Christ and to become wealthy, or to be committed to Christ and to become powerful, or to seek after Christ and to become famous. We can't do that. We have to... Follow Christ, no matter what it costs us, even if it means we may lose out in terms of, of, our, uh, of our business or our vocation. It's, it's Christ first. And Paul says if we are to please the one who called us, we, we have to be unencumbered. We don't become a soldier merely to go see the world. We go out to fight and to suffer hardship. Second metaphor is that of an athlete, and many of you men and women can identify 
Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules, the training rules he's talking about. You can't train on Coke and, and uh, potato chips and expect to win. You can't do that. You have to discipline yourself. You not only has to have to have the dedication and devotion of a soldier, but the discipline of an athlete. Uh, we all watched Mary Lou Renton last year in the Olympics and, and were amazed at the marvelous things she could do with her body. You know, we look at our flabby bodies and we say, my goodness, I wish I could do those things. But the reason we haven't done them and can't do them is because we've never disciplined ourselves to do them. She's only free to do what she does because she's a disciplined woman. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying. We're only free to serve when we're disciplined. And if an athlete is going to receive the reward, which in those days was just a little evergreen wreath, didn't amount to much, but it was a sign of victory and accomplishment. Paul says no wreath without discipline. It's going to cost you. You're going to have to take a look at your schedule and decide where you can work in some time to spend getting to know God. Time in the Word. Time in prayer. Oh, I'm too busy, you say. No, no, it's, busyness is not the problem with you and me. It's a question of priorities. Are we willing to discipline ourselves to learn more of God, to see what we have in Christ, to understand the treasures that are ours in the Word, and to center our lives upon God through, through prayer and through worship and adoration of Him. And it will mean giving up some of our privacy. We like to go home at night, pull up the drawbridge, flood the moat, turn off the telephone, and uh, retire. I do. I see people all day. My life is wall-to-wall people. I get where I can't stand people. I want to go home and shut the doors. And God knows that we have, we have needs for privacy at times, but uh, we can't cling to them. See? We've got to be willing to discipline ourselves for the sake of winning the goal, or winning the prize. Now, the third metaphor that he uses is that of a farmer, and I think this is most apt because farmers get no glory at all. They work hard, and no one ever knows it. But they do receive uh, the first share of the crops. There is a crop if you're diligent. We must be devoted like a soldier, we must be disciplined like an athlete, and we must be diligent like a farmer. No matter how inclement the weather, no matter how disinclined the farmer, he gets out in the fields and he works hard. It takes time. But uh, he's the one who receives the prize. He gets the fruit. And we... Uh, we listen to this and we say, oh my, that is so hard. I can't do that. It's hard to suffer hardship. And so uh, Paul gives us three incentives. The first is that of our Lord Jesus. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. Now here's where you have to think hard about the text. Paul is stressing two things. The first is the humanity of Christ. You'll notice that he reverses the order of names. Paul's consistent use of, uh, of uh, Jesus' name is, or order, is Christ Jesus, because Christ is a title. It's not a name, it's his title. Christ is the ang- anglicized form of the Greek word for Messiah. 
Christ means Messiah, Messiah Jesus. And that's normally Paul's way of putting the order of uh, Jesus' title and name. He is Christ Jesus, or Lord Jesus Christ sometimes, but mostly Christ Jesus. Here he turns it around Jesus Christ because he wants to emphasize his humanity. He is Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is his human name. And then secondly, he stresses his humanity by reminding us that he is a descendant of David. He came through uh, the normal, uh, 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 through the process by which all men come into the world. He is a descendant of, of David. So he's a man. That's Paul's point. And then the second point that he wants to make is that he is today risen. He is not stressing the resurrection. He is stressing the fact of the resurrection. He is risen today. He's ascended at the right hand of God. How did he get there? How did he receive the crown? How was he exalted? He suffered for it, you see. And that's what we have to remember, as, as Hebrews puts it. Because of the glory that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated on the right hand of God. So that whenever things get tough, your circumstances begin to pinch you, uh, your lifestyle gets cramped because of your Christianity, remember Jesus Christ. You will suffer hardship, but that hardship produces glory. There is no crown without a cross. There is no gain without pain, you see. There's no salvation without suffering. A friend of mine a few months ago told me that he told a lie to a man that that, uh, he was going to work for, and uh, he realized after a while that he had to set that thing straight, but he was afraid to because he knew it would be embarrassing to him, and he didn't want to go through the pain. And then he remembered Jesus Christ, who, as he put it, did not dodge the pain of the cross. And so he was willing to endure the pain to receive the glory, you see. So when the going gets tough, uh, it's not that the tough get going. Remember Jesus Christ. He understands. In his manhood, he went through what you're going through. He did not have an edge on you in his humanity. He laid aside the independent use of his attributes as God. And uh, he suffered as you suffered. He felt the full force of suffering. But he received the glory. So remember Jesus Christ. The second uh, uh, incentive is the example of Paul. Uh, Verse 9, for which, that is, for which gospel I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it uh, eternal glory. There is a cause and effect relationship set up here. I suffer. Others are saved. And Paul seems to be saying that uh, others will not be saved unless he suffers. That indicates that suffering is part and parcel of the process of handing salvation on to others. Adoniram Judson, the great uh, missionary to Burma, said, If you succeed without suffering, it is because someone else suffered that you may succeed. If you suffer without succeeding... It is in order that someone behind you may succeed without suffering. The, the two are inexorably bound. Suffering and uh, success go, go together. If you're suffering and you're seeing no success, it may be because someone else later on will reap the benefit of your suffering. 
If you're seeing success today, it's because others have suffered before you, because the two go together. The very fact that we hold our, in our hands this morning a Bible, uh, it, 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 it's here because others have suffered. Wycliffe and others went, went to their deaths in order to give us this Bible. We don't have to suffer for it today, but others did. And if you're suffering today because you name the name of Christ, know that that will result in the salvation of someone else downstream. You may never see it, but it's, it's sure. Paul says, I suffer that they may receive salvation. And then finally, this uh, wonderful uh, uh, sketch of a, a first century uh, liturgy, just a, probably a hymn taken right out of their hymn book. It's a trustworthy statement. It's a thing to be believed in. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Uh, He's simply saying what he said before. There is no life without death. There is no crown without a cross. There's no gain without pain. There is a link between the difficulties that we experience and and the joy and the glory that await us. But his punchline really is the last two lines. If we deny him, he also will deny us. He's speaking about those who are nominally but not vitally Christian. They, they claim to be Christians, but their hearts have never been changed. They've never submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And so their hearts have never been regenerated. And they've turned back like Judas. I am convinced that no true Christian can lose his or her salvation. We are saved to the uttermost by our Lord's death. But uh, there are some who name the name of Christ who are not real believers. Jesus said of them in the end, they will say, we did mighty works in your in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you because there was no vital commitment to Christ. It was just nominal and surface and superficial. And those may deny him and those he will deny in the end. But, and this, this is the comforting word and this is the incentive and this is what keeps me going. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. We will be faithless. We will stumble and fall down and fail and, and we won't follow through. We'll walk out of here full of good intentions and we'll fail. We'll prove faithless like Peter did. But our Lord never gets discouraged with us. He never gives up on us. He's never faithless because he can't deny himself in us. He'll be faithful to us. He'll pick us up. He'll dust us off. And he'll get us going again. That's the kind of Lord we have. And that's what keeps me going. I uh, lose opportunities all the time. To obey the truths that we've been learning this morning. I, I uh, fail to follow through as you do. But what gets me up and gets me going is that constant reminder that he is faithful. faithful, Even though I am faithless. And dear old St. Oswald Sanders, he put it this way. There is an optimism in God which discerns the hidden possibilities in the most unpromising character. He has a keen eye for hidden elements of nobility and promise in the most unprepossessing life. He is the God of the difficult temperament, the God of the warped personality, the God of the misfit. No failure is final. God doesn't waste failure. The God of Jacob is with us. You know who Jacob was? He was the old scoundrel, the rascal that seemed to never get anything right, and yet 
God was his God, and he's your God as well. Now, this is the way to keep your sanity in an insane uh, world, and this is the way to say something to our world. First, strengthen your soul in God. Get a grip on him. Strengthen yourself by his grace. Maybe you need to get away for a while and and get another grip on God and, and think through what he has promised and what he is to you. But that's the place to begin. Strengthen your soul in God. And then secondly, begin to entrust the truth to others. Don't worry about numbers. Don't worry about results. Faithfully, doggedly, persistently, love other people and entrust the truth to them. And then third, be willing to take your share of suffering. Because there is no gain without pain. There is no crown without a cross. There is no salvation without suffering. Let's pray. Father, teach us to be, uh, teach us to center ourselves upon you, to depend upon you, to rely upon your grace for all things. And as we share it uh, together this morning, the Lord's table, your table, help us to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Help us to focus upon him, the suffering that he endured, the glory that he's experienced today. And make of us, Lord, what you want us to be. We want to be used. We want to see people brought into your kingdom. We want to see them grow in grace. We want to be used in that process. May we strengthen ourselves, Lord, by your grace to do so. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.